Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. All right, I've been running. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah, you made a quick run. We're uh, testing the live the live feed again, huh? Is that what's going on? Yep, because uh, what's been happening the last two times we ran the live feed is... Uh, shenanigans? Shena- <laughs> well, <laughs> computer shenanigans, not human. It was it would be It would change it to a previous show rather than stream the current show. So the current show would be up, ready to go. Ready to go. And then the second the top of the hour hits, boom, we're flipping. It starts playing the, the, the previous the show. show. Before. Yeah. Wow, that's weird. So I wanted to see it for myself to see what it was doing, and it did actually do it. And then we... You saw it with your own eyes. saw it with my own eyes. So <clears throat> we'll have to figure that out another time, but we got it live streaming. Good. Let's hope uh, we don't make any mistakes then. Clean show. Clean show all the way through. All right. I don't want to be held to the fire by any uh, anybody down there. Well, there will be. <laughs> I, I do have to talk about some disciplinary action, but let's first. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. Let's welcome everybody to Roach on Recovery. Yeah, indeed. Uh, this is your host, Orville Roach, along with uh, my producer, co-host, and uh, engineer, Chris Morales, in the house. Do what I can. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio, and that's where we're streaming from. If you don't, uh, or if you choose to, you can just uh, listen live via the uh, call-in line, if that's your only means, and by all means. Make it happen. Make it happen. So uh, after an investigation into last, uh, the last show two weeks ago on the 10th of May, mm-hmm. um, we had a problem with the intro. The show intro didn't play right off the bat. Right. And we were... And when it did start to play, the sound quality was a little off. Right. So I did some investigation and found out that um, 
the reason that the show intro didn't play is because uh, the host uh, who uses the podcast for other reasons other than the show yeah. uh, took it off of the auto setting to play the intro oh, boy. and did not reset it when he programmed the show. It's a good thing the co-host, after five seconds, decided, hey, let's just press play and see what happens anyway, because it's yeah. not going. Yeah. So um, we will have to, uh, you know, have some significant disciplinary action. Off the air, of course. To, to For the host, uh, for forgetting to uh, reset the auto, reset it back to auto. Um and who knows? Next show, uh, the host may not be uh, may not be here. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, everyone gets held accountable? Everybody wants to know. Speaking of being held accountable, did uh, the music director the music director keep or lose her job? Uh, right now, that's still being uh, human resources is still looking okay. at that. All right, uh, all right. We'll, we'll continue further, to, further investigation. We'll, we'll, right now, we're on a show by show basis. We'll see how. The music director does this week. Okay. It's like a probationary period. Um, and, you know, her choices and uh, how it fits with our topic and all of those things. We'll see how it goes. All right. Let's, uh... You know it. So far, there have been no torn ACLs, MCLs, or uh, or this new this what this, what's with this new injury, the torn pectoral muscle that these guys. Oh have yeah, getting. you've heard about some torn pectorals now. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Line too much, usually too much too much bench pressing. Too much bench pressing. Yeah, probably. Or too much weight. Yep, overexerting themselves in that regard. Mm-hmm. Got nothing to report from Niners camp other than the old cliche. If you got two quarterbacks, you don't got one. You don't got one. And we and we definitely have two going into going into training camp, a quarterback got, competition. You got Blaine Blabbermouth and Colin Pumpernickel. That's it. That so, is it. Well, uh OTA start OTAs are going. Right now as right we speak. Right now okay. as we speak. And then training camp usually starts like the last week of July. So they'll have a little a little two month six to eight week hiatus. And just so for our listeners who don't give a rat's about football, OTA stand for organized team activities, organized team activities, but they're voluntary. Typically they have to be with quotations. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they have to be voluntary by the, uh, made by the league mandate. But if you don't, it's sh- frowned upon. If, if, you, <laughs> if you show up, you get the look. If you don't show up, you get the look. Right. Right. Okay. So that's what's going on. Not much. This is the silent time. This is the silent time of the NFL. And are we still sticking to our uh, NBA schedule? We're not going to talk until the finals, or did we say we'll talk when the... We said we talk when the conference championships hit, which is now. All right. I'll let you do some speaking. Well, the New York Knicks are not in it. (laughs) Far (laughs) from it. Far from it. But uh, there is Knicks news, right? Didn't... uh, Oh, Phil Jackson was in talks with somebody to. Um, oh, Jeff Hornacek. Yeah, yeah. right. He, but, didn't, he didn't hire him, did he? No. Oh, and good, I've good. still heard, and obviously, who knows how this is being reported on the West Coast, but 
that he is still looking for someone who is willing to implement his triangle offense. He just won't let go of that. I don't know. I don't know why. Like you won your ten rings or whatever with it. You're a front office guy now. Like let some. It's a new league. Mm-hmm. It's a new league. But I don't know. That would be that would be your thing to talk about. I ain't got nothing to say. No, nothing I'm, to say about. I'm it. distraught. I'm dejected. Depressed. I mean, you name it. We don't have a first-round pick. No, no. Mortgage that off. Thank you, Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> Mortgage that off. Um, surprising at all to you that the Cavs and the Toronto Raptors are tied 2-2. After those first two losses where Cleveland beat them up by like 30 points per game, I figured that was smooth sailing, sweet. Not really, because Toronto has been very good at home. Yeah, it's true. They do play well at home, a lot better at home, actually. And their their offense is is dominated by their guards, and Cleveland's guards aren't really great defenders anyway. True. Um, and then as a fan, the, the more games, the better. Of course, yeah. Me. I don't want to see sweeps, and then you were just waiting for 10 days right, for right, the next right. series or game Fans to start. want to see game sevens, yeah. man, all yeah. on the line. Yeah, extends the season now. I know players don't like it, but as fans – I want to see it go into mid-June. Sure, of course. And then for the... Because that means that it's only a two-week wait for training camp, NFL training camp. That's right. (laughs) That's right. It takes us all the way until that bit. Um, And then we'll go with the non-subjective or objective view of the West Coast series going on right now. The games tonight, Warriors down two games to one. How do you see it? Shaken down. Oklahoma City gonna well, gonna I'm do still, this. I'm still on my self-imposed ban uh, of our gentleman's agreement. Well, technically, our gentleman's agreement was stated that you couldn't watch until what game seven, seven of the Western Conference Finals. Well, I believe you said Warriors Spurs, and that can no longer be the case because the Spurs did, are did out. I say of, that? I think so. Oh, okay. All we right. leave it for Western Conference Finals anyway. Yeah, because I can jinx the Warriors very easily. But do you see it going to seven? The Warriors have something to be worried about here. If the Warriors win tonight, I think they can take it in six. And if they lose, if, it's if, a bad if the Thunder, they they absolutely have to win this game if they want any chance of winning the series. I I feel that even as a fan, I feel the same way. Yeah. If the Warriors win, I don't see them losing coming back at Golden State. And right. if they take a three-two lead, it's done. Right. But if they go down three to one. There's the Thunder's shot right there. So I think it is a pivotal game for sure. For sure. All right. All right. Let's hit our topic. Moving along. Is there any recap? Do we have to cover anything from the show two weeks back? Anything we missed? Anything to revisit? It was a a risque subject. Any, uh, maybe any... Employees out there, or ex-employees, have, want to call in on the call line and <laughs> after having had some time to think about it? No, but what I do want to talk about real quick before we hit our topic is um, we held Mark Tintrip's memorial service mm-hmm. this past Sunday um, in Los Altos, California. It was well attended. Um, there were many, I will forever call them kids, but they're now in their 30s and you know some of them might be touching 40 by now um the kids from the early 90s and mid 90s who were uh in the adolescent program when mark was uh was was there yeah um so i saw many of them when when i got up to spoke speak 
one of the first things I said is that I, I do recognize some of you and some of you I don't. So let me know who you are because, you know, obviously when you know them at 15 and how they look, especially the guys with their damn Grizzly Adam beards. That's the thing. You, know, you can't tell, you know, you can't recognize who they are. Yeah. So you had the Arlos, the Zacks, um, okay. Samara, Sonia, both Sabrinas, um, Maria, um, a, a number of uh, of the kids from back then um, came. A number of staff who knew him that are currently with our organization who knew him back in the you know when he was with Daytop. So it was it, it was it was pretty good. Okay, it was pretty good. Good turnout, it sounds like. Yeah, and uh, hope to have a, a couple of pictures to put up on our Facebook page. Good from up the. People who attend. Sure, the event, yeah. yeah. So that's that's that. Okay. So nice. life, life, the cycle of life continues to move on. Indeed, it does. Oh, we Indeed are we, we are going to. Uh, we did announce that we 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 will honor him by having a what we will call a tintrip tree. Okay. Uh, Great. We'll, we will put it out in front of the. Uh, the old adolescent facility. Sure, um, sure. And um, the uh, his wife will pick out what kind of tree it's and all that stuff, and uh, that nice. will be our quote unquote eternal memorial for him. Okay, that's where he made his biggest impact with right. the kids and so on and so forth. So, and this will be on the uh, the Woodside face. Yes. Okay. Yeah. On the on the highway side. Beautiful. Very nice. So the uh, the topic today, I'll just throw it out there to the crowd, uh, kind of have been pushing this one on the host uh, yeah. in our personal text communication. They're like, hey, this is, this is completely new, what's going on compared to what everyone's used to seeing, and we need to, we need to talk about it. Yep. It needs to be put on the table. Treatment is, has a new look, and it's nothing like it used to be. This, of course, says nothing about the fact that I did a whole show, <clears throat> excuse me, a pre-recorded show on the Affordable Care Act, which uh, the host and uh, and others who shall go unnamed have have sworn to make sure it never sees the light of day. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. But uh, we will have to touch on it just a little bit in order to make our point about today's topic. Change is upon us. And we're going to do it in two parts because residential is a part all by itself. Right, right. Okay. Um, we've touched on it in bits and pieces in, in various shows when we talked about the state of drug treatment, period, nationally. Okay. And the impact that, let's just, everyone's familiar with the term Obamacare, so we'll use that. That out of any disrespect is just. Common. That's how it's known. Right. Um, but what wasn't known or discussed or, or wi- wi- widely uh, known in the treatment world is uh, what impact, if any, that was going to have on on drug you know drug treatment. Right. Well, lo and behold, little did Major we know, be- buried in the two thousand nine hundred pages. <laughs> Right. Was the option for the states to uh, 
take more Medicaid money and use that money for drug treatment in the mm-hmm. states. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, with making that decision, you know, when you, you know, the old saying, "He who has the gold makes the rules," right? So if you take the federal money, you're going to have to go by the federal rules. So right. California, of course, being the largest state which would get the largest amount of money, decided that they were going to take the Medicaid money and totally revamp their whole system of care um, of how they were providing drug treatment. They applied for a waiver along with, I think, New York applied, Illinois applied, Texas applied, the the large states states, applied for a waiver, a federal waiver, uh, not to get too deep in the weeds. It's called an IMD exclusion. Because all of the Medicaid rules were written back in the 1950s and 1960s, and it prevented traditional alcohol and drug treatment programs from using Medicaid funds for residential. Okay. Okay. All right. And outpatient so, only. Outpatient only. Yeah. Right. So with these states now wanting to do these pilots of revamping their substance abuse treatment systems. Seeing how it'll go. And uh, basically changing them into what's called what is really a managed care system mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and offering the full continuum of care including detox withdrawal management and you know recovery residence and then traditional residential outpatient day treatment all that stuff yeah the the sticking point with the state was that well if you have more than 16 beds you could not you weren't allowed to use the medicaid money and so they kept pushing the feds, pushing them, and the feds finally relented on that 16-bed limit um, and became known as a federal waiver. Yeah. Okay. So California got the waiver first last year. Mm-hmm. Once the waiver was approved, then California has 58 counties, unlike using the example of New York, which, doesn't, which has counties. But the way things are funded in New York, it's the state to the city. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and yeah, to yeah. Uh, maybe some of the larger counties upstate, but it's just funded differently. And here, you know, the money comes to the state and it goes out to 58 counties. Can you, if you can imagine that. Yeah. It's like having 58 brothers and sisters. Yeah, there's not okay? much pie left. Right. Once they take their, the counties take their administrative <laughs> cut off the top. Their first okay. slice. Right. The one with the most whipped cream. Not a lot left for, for the providers. But, yeah. Um, Be that as it may. Yes. So with them getting approved first, then each county that was going to participate, uh, our, our co-host is battling a, uh, what are you battling? Just call it a cough, huh? Oh, okay, battling a cough. Common cold cough. I need to take him to Jamaica and get him, get him injected the, the, with some <laughs> Jamaican immune, the, immune the real cells. Immune system. I'm working the halls strong right now, the cherry halls. Uh, my mother get a hold of you and pump you pump you up with some spices and and some some ginger some, some and garlic country, and some some country uh, some country herbs and country I, remedies. I, I don't mean the, uh, the the herb herb. I mean the herbs. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but anyway, so once the federal waiver got approved, the counties then had to develop their plans. So you got 58 different plans in the state of California. Yeah. So we we only care about our county, San Mateo County. And, fortunately or not, San Mateo County is the first county to get its plan approved by the feds and the state. And they are projecting an official start date of January 1. 
for the implementation of what they are calling their Organized Delivery System, ODS for short. January 1, 2017. 2017. Okay. Right. We'll be here quicker than you know. Of course. Okay. So the argument during this process of trying to get the waiver and, 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 and trying to do this pilot and having the state revamp its system was that the feds were never going to go for more than a 30-day residential stay. Why? Because residential is the highest level of care. It costs the most, most money. money. Right. Okay. And we said, as providers, that's not going to work. Period. At minimum, you start at 90, 90 right. day minimum. Right. Okay. But all the research is the longer someone's in residential, the better the outcomes. And they, they got the feds to agree to a 90-day residential stint. stint, which would be covered by Medicaid, 30-day extension, which would be a rarity, they say, but it's out there. Um, and so with that being said, just that alone changes drug treatment. Well, the pilot's five years, so I'll just say forever. Sure, sure. Okay. The days of people spending nine months, 12 months, 15 months in residential treatment are over. Gone are those days. Okay. Yeah. Now, you're going to speak to this because you brought up a great point in terms of pro and con of that model versus the current model that we're going to be moving to. Yeah. Okay. We're in OCGs already in the process of, we're not waiting until July, you know, January one, we're moving into that model as we speak. So come January one, smooth transition. It's just, yeah, it's just flipping the switch and we're, we're already there. But, um, in the old model, the residential providers over the years became more than just drug treatment providers. Because it wasn't just about someone coming into treatment. It was, well, when they were finished with treatment or on the tail end of treatment, um, what about where they were going to live? And what about employment? And so all of those ancillary things that someone needs in order to maintain recovery. You know what I'm saying? It's not just, hey, you do your 12 months and then you, know, you get a foot in your back and you're out the door and whatever happens, it's your problem. You do whatever you can to increase the odds of success. Exactly. So if you send someone out of treatment and they have no employment and or they have no place to live, the odds are very high that they're going to relapse. Or relapse, find themselves in a bad place. Exactly. At the very least. Right. So what? While, when we were day top, what we started doing is we re, we, we kept people longer because we even though they may have finished clinically finished their treatment. Okay, and unlike in the New York model, the New York model was they in downstate in the city they had their outreach centers, they had their reentry mm-hmm, units, mm-hmm. and then up in the mountains were the residential facilities. Okay, so you would do your treatment upstate, then you would come down to the city to do your reentry, which was appropriate because you were quote unquote reentering society, right. reentering the city environment. That model was as hard as we tried to kind of replicate that model in California. It was just impossible because 
first of all, no one was having a 200-bed facility. There was no right, county that was going right. to allow it. It was like, hell no. Uh, we're not having 200 people in one in one location. Yeah, one unit, yeah. Um, they just couldn't fathom that. I said, well, we have 200-bed facilities all over. So here we are with 40 beds, 32 beds, and, you know, and, and, and whatnot. Six beds. <laughs> six, six beds. It's hard to imagine for the people who are used to, you know, large, large-scale facilities. Yeah. So, like, when I came out to California from, from Swan Lake, leaving a 250-bed facility, coming to the adolescent facility, which was 39 beds. Right. I had 37 people on my caseload at Swan Lake. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So it was an interesting change of dynamics. And for people familiar with the TC, yeah. you can only imagine how much harder it would be to to implement and see a TC running the way it should when you would have 31 clients versus yeah. 200. Yes. Because just the way the TC structure, for those of you who don't know, the, the TC structure, the way it's set up, <clears throat> excuse me, you have several job titles for different clients to assume different responsibilities, and the chain rolls downhill from there. And so when you have a facility with 31 versus 300, you, you have more supervisors than you have employees, mm-hmm. um, to put it you know in kind of a broader type of context, so it's more easily understood, and that just doesn't work. And so we had to become very skilled and proficient at, you know, where we could kind of cut corners a little bit in the chain to to still see a TC function the way it should mm-hmm. because it's supposed to be its own living thing. And that's very hard to do when you have a very small number of clients. Right. I think when I used to tell the clients back in the day that we had 20-something expediters at Swan Lake. Right, right. Compared to... The five-man team, five-person team you got here. Uh-huh. You know what I mean. So, um, the 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 correlation to how the TC can function and and, and a single staff person can run a 250-bed facility. Well, right. there's a reason why. Is because if you've got 17 coordinators and 20 25 expediters, you can do it. Yeah, it's getting done. It's getting done. So, <clears throat> all right. Where were we? <laughs> so the p- providers eventually, unlike, again, how it's set up in New York, but here locally, we kind of had to become everything because we couldn't allow clients to leave unless we were sure they were going to have housing, yep, that they had right. employment first. So people would would find jobs and kind of stay in the facility sure. for three or four months, saving their money looking for housing because, you know, most weren't going back home, you know, or wherever they were. If they came from jail, they certainly weren't, you know, there was no place for them to go. Exactly. They, they had to develop independent, uh, independent living plan. And that's part of the reason why in the, what was it, late 90s, early 2000s, whatever it was, that we, we opened up our transition house. That's right. Because mm-hmm. there was just a need for that. Um, teen months, 16 months stay, you know, treatment might, quote unquote, treatment may have ended like at month 11, but then you have three months of working, saving your money. Trying Um, to come up with a feasible plan to leave and not be set up. Exactly. Right. So, 
So how how is that going to look now? This is what I'm thinking to myself on late Saturday nights. You know, how, how we're going to do this with residential being limited to 90 days. And that's not even the kicker. Okay? So for those of us who work in the field, we know the term ASAM. Familiar with that term? Yes, indeed. So ASAM is an acronym that stands for the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And part of the requirement that the feds are placing on the states, and then the states are placing on the counties, and then the counties are placing on the providers. Everything rolls downhill, folks. And then the executive of the providers placing it on the floor staff. There you go. It rolls (laughs) downhill. Um, Everything is being driven by the ASAM assessment tools. Sure. Okay? So someone walking in the door gets an ASAM screening to determine what modality of treatment they need. Do they need residential? Do they need intensive outpatient, what they used to call day treatment? Do they need just outpatient? Do they need to go to detox first? Do they need withdrawal management? This is what the screening tool will determine. And then if it says, hey, they need residential, you then do what's called a residential screening, okay, which is like an assessment, okay, mm-hmm. to just mm-hmm. obtain information. So, when, when, as they're telling us this in, the, in, in our monthly meetings and they're walking us through how this is going to work, the res, and, and by the way, just FYI, there's only five residential providers in San Mateo County now. Okay. Residential so, providers. Yeah, residential okay. providers. So we're sitting there and as they're talking and, and, and we kind of all come to the same conclusion. If the everything is being driven by the ASAM, what the needs are, what you what, what you need coming out of jail or walking in off the street is going to be driven by that assessment tool, okay? What happens or what's going to happen if at day 50 or day 70 in residential, we do the ASAM because you do it every 30 days to, you have to verify that they're in continual need of the level of service that you're giving them. This is where the managed care part comes in. Yeah. Okay. So every 30 days you have to verify that they continue to need residential. So it's just more work. Paperwork. More paperwork. Busy work. Yeah. So the question was raised, well, what happens if at day 70 or day 75 or day 80, we do another ASAM and it says that they continue to need residential? but they only got 15 days left or 10 days left. What, what do we do then? So, so far, it's just... You tell, been, you tell the assessment tool is, to go away. This is where we need that, uh, uh, a clip of crickets. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So far, they have not come up with an answer for that question. Uh, that we, they, they have told us they will come up with an answer before the implementation date, and I hope that's the case because otherwise, it's an ethical question. If someone needs continued residential treatment based on what the assessment tool says, but on one hand you're saying we're only going to fund 90 days, but and then on another hand, so now you got three hands, you're saying the ASAM is going to drive all decisions. But so far as we sit here today, it's not in truth driving all decisions when it comes to residential because you're living in it at 90 days. Right. So we're waiting to hear from the county on that. And what do you mean I'm not an expert? <laughs> There's two answers they may have. One, this is the hopeful one, is 
they may dig into their deep reserves. We live in a very, very wealthy county. Yes, indeed. Okay, I think number... Number two in California, is it? Uh, I'm talking in, in the country. I think we're in the top five okay. in the country, number two in California. Yep. Um, so maybe they will decide that if there is an assessed need for a continued and extended stay in, in residential, residential mm-hmm. that the county will, out of their funds, since Medicaid says, nope, we're cutting you off at 90, that they will kick in their dollars. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. <laughs> I do not know if they will say that. They're very fiscally conservative in this county. Yeah. Okay. Um, liberal in other areas, but fisc- with their money, they're tight. As are most who okay. have a lot of money. So, typically speaking. Now, that sounds... You know, a little gloomy. You know, that it, it's a concern as a provider because we know that most of the people, at least our clientele, that we get coming to treatment aren't people who just started using. <laughs> right, right, right. Just been smoking weed, smoking for, the last, weed on the weekend. For, for the last three months. Right. You know, we have, we're dealing with long term addicts. Yeah. Okay. And. Folks who have gone on drug runs longer than 90 days. Exactly. <laughs> so, and we know that what, what's going to happen. Now, we've mentioned on occasion in our show that OCG finds itself in a very unique position. Okay. And we do. Okay. But I want you to talk about first about, you know, we talked a little bit about the con of, you know, the limitation of the 90 days. Right. But there is a, a pro side to it. Yep. Which you had talked about before. Can you talk about it again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I sincerely believe this to be a pro, even though we may not have on our own volition created something that looks the way it does currently, but you can imagine it was the spontaneous combustion that it happened. (laughs) Right. Um, you can imagine an extended period or an extended stay of residential treatment as the host was speaking about 12, 13, 14 months, whatever the case may be. Um, there is a reason why the, the county words it this way, and it is the way it is. When you move from residential treatment to your outpatient treatment with a residential component, it's considered a step down in care, right? And so that is actually going to be felt in the method of delivering treatment contingent upon the facility you're in. Residential is going to feel more intense as far as treatment is concerned than outpatient with a recovery residence uh, component uh, because the step-down in care dictates that to be so. And so back in the day, what you had was a very extreme, intense, emotionally – challenging program for 9, 10, 11, 12 months. And for those who were fortunate enough and strong enough to complete that program in its entirety, they would have a a ceremony at the end of their residential treatment. Mm -hmm. They would be awarded a diploma. It was made a big deal because it was a big deal. And you're free to go now. You're sent on your way. Mm -hmm. And so you're going from one very sheltered and structured environment in a way to the real world 
without any kind of stepping down, without any kind of middle ground. And that transition was just as extreme as the transition from being out there and using drugs to being sent into a residential program Mm -hmm. where you're kind of hit smack in the face. And that can be very challenging for some because with six o'clock wake ups, right. (laughs) And, And that can be very challenging for some because now you're in the real world and you have to now adjust to the, the changing climate, so to speak. You have to adjust from the 100-degree heat to the freezing cold just like that. Well, what this kind of system and the politics that have taken place has created is an environment where you're going to begin in that extreme residential component, that, that, that very intense residential environment for your first, like the host said, 90 days and sometimes 120 um, if it can be justified, and then you're not just going home after that. You'll be stepped down into a program where you're going to be attending outpatient groups, but there's still going to be a residential component where you can come and sleep at night, and there's going to be meals provided, and perhaps you'll get in a job search, and you have time to to look for what your next step is going to be. Is it going to be school? Am I going to be working full-time? How much am I going to be able to save? And so you're going to go through this kind of middle step for X amount of months Mm -hmm. until maybe you're ready to make a third and final step with which our program happens to offer as well in a transitional living. And so just imagine, I I guess, the the slope of the line, if you will, the steepness of the curve. You're, You're not going, you know, from the top of the mountain and then a straight fall off. You're going down the mountain gradually. There's a middle ground where you can practice other skills, and I think the host can speak more to this, but sometimes some clients, even though the ASAM is what it is and stated you're ready to be moved down into care and those clients may not actually be ready, Mm -hmm. might suffer a relapse while they're out there on job search or or while they're out there taking themselves to their medical um, appointments and then be stepped back up into care. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure, and like I said, the host is the expert on this, the politics behind that, but that has happened, where we have had clients step down into the outpatient and recovery residence portion of their treatment who weren't quite ready, as a result, suffered a relapse, and then had to be moved back up into uh, treatment, which is better than supposing that client had gone through 9 to 12 months and wasn't ready. Right. And then hit the, but now the relapse has happened on the street, not while they're still coming home into a program, right. which can lead to worse things. Uh, and then after the middle step is complete, if they want, the recovery, um, the outpatient or the, like the SLE type thing at the very end of the road, which is available. And so I believe that that's the biggest pro or benefit to this type of system is that we are slowly transitioning back into freedom with tests along the way each way Mm -hmm. where if you fail some of those tests, you have a very good safety net still to fall back on Mm -hmm. versus being at home or on the street when it happens. Um, It's more of a smooth transition from, from one type of environment to another versus all your time spent in one mode and then right out into the other right and i think that's the biggest benefit that it can provide granted you know that we can do it as well as we can as an organization and be on the same page and do it smoothly and 
takes practice because it's new. It's mm-hmm. kind of new to everybody. So Fascinating. <laughs> All that for that, huh? Yep. The um, So everything has to be revamped, mm-hmm. which we've already kind of started. Um, the residential the the two facets that make up residential treatment the clinical services and then the therapeutic community services are being kind of separated out this is another significant change say that again the two facets that make up residential treatment, at least okay. for OCG, yeah. you have uh-huh. the clinical services, right? Okay, which you might call the treatment services, sure, and then the therapeutic community services, right? Okay, okay. So the treatment services are the groups and the individual counseling and all of that stuff, and then the, the therapeutic community services are, uh, you, know, you know, the bookings and and. Um, and still some of the morning meetings and the evening some wrap the up behavioral and, modification yeah, and stuff and the traditional TC groups and care right. group and things of that nature. Okay. Behavioral interventions, behavioral change, attitude, addressing attitudes and things of that nature. That's the TC. Right. So lazy and non-caring, this, <laughs> you know, I hate that expression. <laughs> That's Wait, why I had, to, to, had more. to drop it. I like creativity. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. Um, So this new paradigm forces us to have to split them apart within the same facility. Same geographic location. Right, because they are funding them separately. They're carving them out, saying Medicaid is only going to pay for treatment, and this will be responsible for everything else. And for us, everything else is the TC. Right. And so what that forces us to do is we have to, like, basically restructure our program. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, we have to track progress separately now. Yeah, that's right. We used right. to have one phase sheet, you know, just no, there's two. for your progress through residential, and now we have to have two separate phase sheets, one for the clinical side, one for the TC side, et cetera. Uh, we have to structure our staff team differently. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to... How we would we structured our adolescent staff team? We had an adolescent program, right? We had the clinical team and we had the behavioral team, but we're not calling them that. We have the TC team, the clinical team. Um, I, I kind of like that type of staff structure, by the way. Um, I can't speak for the staff. I'm just saying, me personally. Uh, what do you believe that brings to the table? It allows a so whichever I'm going to be, if I'm going to be on the clinical team, I only need to focus my attention there. I don't right. have to worry about anything else going on in the facility, just right. doing the clinical services, the clinical documentation. That's the more what, narrow focus. That's what I focus on. Yeah. And, and why that's very important now is that there's a ton of documentation when it sure, comes to sure. the organized delivery system. That's right. You know, that's the caveat when you when – you, uh, you know, it's Government not money. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's not OCG to make the decision, but hey, you know, when when, when the state says, yeah, we're going to take the federal money, and you know, and 
you know, there's a pro to taking it, meaning the Fed say, okay, we'll pay you whatever it costs for you to run your program. But on the flip side, we're going to bury you and pay for <laughs> That's right. You're going to have to prove it. You're going to have to prove that You're this money is being put to you. Exactly. When someone goes to the bathroom, we want it documented. I'm that's exaggerating, but you get the picture. That's right. So that's always been the case, but it's even more so when you get into Medicaid. Even with the federal block grant for drug treatment that all 50 states get, okay? Yeah. There was a significant amount of documentation. You have to prove what you were doing and, and, and document and still do treatment plans and progress notes and all that stuff. But it's kind of two times the amount. This is like when we had um, CARE, a CARE program out of Sacramento and DADS. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So some of our staff have experienced, you know, this level of... The adolescent staff yeah. are used to that kind of... Because when dealing with adolescents, by you virtue of dealing with kids, there's more politics yeah, involved. Yeah, heavily regulated, and right. they want to know everything, and, right. and all that stuff. So it's kind of a, a similar deal in terms of... So by having the staff focused in on narrow areas, so if I'm a TC staff, I only have to worry about TC-related stuff. I don't have to worry about doing treatment plans and progress notes and all of that stuff. The clinical team focuses on that. You can become very proficient in your area. In my role. Yeah. Okay. It's similar to when when I came out from from New York from being a counselor where you had to do both. Mm -hmm. Not only did Mm -hmm. you were you responsible, if you were the staff on duty, you were responsible for the floor, but you still had to do your treatment plans and your notes and so on and so forth. Imagine that for 37 people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. To come to California and be told, listen, since you're the only one who knows the TC, we want you to focus on bringing in the new clients and orientating them and then training staff. I was like, wait a second. I don't have to do treatment yeah, plans really? or anything. I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still going to get paid? I thought I had the All best right. job in Daytop. Yeah, yeah. So that you could become that's you the could added, excel in that exactly, area. But that's the attitude that I took is that I can become very good at just this. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to worry about anything else. That's right. Okay. So um, it's my hope that that's the attitude others adopt. But be that as it may, we're going down that road anyway. So <laughs> yeah, Adopt it or not. You're coming or you're not coming. So, um, so residential is going to just look different. It's going to feel different, and it's also, and this is more on the selfish side as a provider of services, as a counselor, <coughs> once again, okay, a little piece is being taken from us in terms of what we used to get out of doing this work was seeing someone walk in the door at their lowest low, okay, in all facets, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you name it, at their lowest low, and see the manifestation of change. See them go through those trimesters that we described last year or year two years ago, whatever it was. Right. Those go through the different trimesters of treatment and see the different manifestations of change and then see the end product as they walked out the door completing treatment as, as, as we knew it back then, you know, just the residential uh, phase of treatment. And as treatment shrank down and got shorter and shorter in terms of the residential, 
as a counselor, you no longer got to experience that. Mm-hmm. You got relegated to now foundation laying. Right. So if you think of building a house, you know, you know, you got your plumbers, mm-hmm. your electricians, and your your mason guys, and you know, and the guys who do the concrete. So we, we you're we, literally just building the skeleton. Yeah, right. We're the foundation words. layers. We we didn't get the the privilege anymore of seeing the end result until or unless someone completed and came back and said, I want to present myself for graduation, and you got a chance to see them walk and accept their graduation diploma. Right. But the days of seeing that that transition, that change, take you know, someone, you know, crawl. I, I like to used to say, I see someone crawl, crawl in and walk out. I've always liked the cocoon analogy myself. Yeah. You come into treatment as a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. The facility is the cocoon, mm-hmm. and you leave a beautiful butterfly. I'm not sure what that means. But I'll <laughs> that's the that's the analogy I've always liked to draw. But yeah, mm-hmm. that that was like you said, you know, on the selfish side of things for the counselor, and that's okay. That's one of the the perks to the job that it may the gratifications the gratification you know and that's a lot of the reason why people work in this field you're not going to become a millionaire Mm -hmm. but to be able to see lives changing and know that in some way you were a cog in that process you know it's like where the the magic is so to speak so once again they've taken that from us Thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, politicians around the around the country. So, the trick now, and we've had this discussion as a staff team, is okay. So, how do you how do you reformulate, recalibrate, to continue to get gratification, even though the paradigm is changing in terms of what's what you're seeing in front of you? You don't get to hold you don't get to hold on to people as long as we did in the past to see that change happen. But somebody else in a different modality will see more than what you'll see. So people working in the residential program are going to see far less. They're just going to, they're going to be laying the the foundation. They're going to be pouring concrete. That's right. They can be pouring concrete. And before you know it, the, the client has moved on to the next phase we're going to talk more about that next show, but the next phase, which is now going to be, and this is where the the tremendous shift is, residential used to be the longest block of treatment. Right. Okay. Right. It's now, now going it's to be become the, the shortest block mm-hmm. of treatment, unless San Mateo County digs deep. <clears throat> but theoretically, it's going to become the shortest block, and... The other modalities, the the, the, middle the different uh, yeah the middle steps, the different outpatient modalities are going to become the the core the chunk the, the core chunk. We're different, but let's pretend we're not. Let's say uh, you know you're just storefront because most outpatient is just storefront. Right. Um. To I think about it now from a I'm thinking about it from a provider's perspective, wow, so, and let me preface my comments with this. There are 90-day programs out there that existed long before this. Plenty. Okay. The majority. We we were like the exception to the rule. Right. Okay. You need long-term treatment? Okay, that's got to be day top or now, you know, OCG. Yeah. Because they're the only ones that do long-term treatment. Um, Everybody else is, you know, 30-day, 60-day, 90-day, and that's it. Um, 
So maybe maybe it's only us that has to adapt. I mean, like Project yeah. 90, they, they've only done 90 That's days. That's what they do, right. Okay. Um, I'm not sure about Hope House and uh, Women's Recovery. Yeah, WRA. I think they were long-term as well, I think. They might have gone up to six, mm-hmm. six months or so. So um, there is one mm, good thing. In there, you talked about if there's a, uh, you know, if if someone gets stepped down in care, and that language is appropriate, step down instead right. of fall fall off the cliff, <laughs> right. like back in the day, right? Um, that we do have the uh, allowance, one time within a 12 month period to step somebody back, back up, up, you know, for a, a residential intervention. Now, is that allowance, even though the one time in a year, is that for an additional 90 or just 30? You can, it can go 30, it can be 60, or up to 90. Okay. Once in a year. But once once in a 12-month period. For that client. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's going to be different. And, and, and like with anything, you know, in this field, the, the old-timers, you know. Got a rough go of it. Have, have a, definitely. That I mean, and such is life with anyone who's been doing something for 10, 15, 20 years a certain way mm-hmm. and for what it's worth has completely bought into that way of doing it. Like this, this is something I believe in. That's why I've done it mm-hmm. for 20 years and I've seen it work and this is what I preached. And now you know, I'm going to have to deliver it differently. That's going to be hard to take on multiple levels. Okay. <clears throat> for one, I'm just going to be at, just ask, being asked to do something new right. is going to be tough when you've gotten into uh, a mode of operation where it's almost mindless. You just you go in and knowing your job, and you can do your job through and through because you've been doing it for 20 years. Doing something new is tough enough. And then also having to wrap your mind around, do I really believe that this is going to work because I really believed in the other the other method because I've been doing it for so, so long? So you touched on something very important, which I want to <laughs> – kind of close with okay sure so it comes down to the question professionally do we as professionals think this new model your organized delivery system is going to be successful in the best interest of the, the clients yeah. and in and improve the outcomes for providers and my answer to that knowing all that I know is all of the research that has been done, all of it, there's no outlier mm-hmm. study. Every single study has shown that the 180-day stay is the most effective in terms of getting positive outcomes mm-hmm. for residential. And then with the step down to the next level, mm-hmm available and then step down to the next level available. Okay. All the studies have shown more often than not the 90 day stay. Okay. Has a higher incidence of relapse. Sure. And again, needing a residential intervention. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, are we going to be putting clients on a uh, a mouse wheel or gerbil wheel. Sure. Okay. Um, and basically, is California dreaming Ooh. 
about what Take the outs listeners because here <laughs> the reason they they the, the the reason they get the waiver and they get the pilot is they have to show that their systems the county's systems that they developed have positive outcomes right that you're giving us permission to use this money in new and different ways and having more flexibility to use the Medicaid money. We can prove to you that we can get better outcomes and better benefits from using it this way. Right. question is, well, will you get better outcomes when you shrink the most intense part of treatment? Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because, again, not everybody is like OCG and has a housing component to their day treatment program. Right, which kind of still keeps people in the cocoon a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Right. Even though it there's does. more freedom, is it's not as tightly structured. They're still in the, you know, they still have to come home to the cocoon. They're still in the bosom yeah, of that's OCG. Right. That's right. Okay, they're not just dropped off on onto the street. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, after five years, it may be you know. They, yeah. they may not get the results that they are expecting, or or that they may have projected. I, I haven't been. In, I wasn't in the room when they were telling the feds, "Yeah, we can do you know this or that." You know? Right. <clears throat> Who knows? True. And then you could also imagine just taking the idea of the ninety-day residential, the step down, and then once in twelve months a step back up for a potential ninety days, which is your hundred and eighty anyway. Right. That. That 180 all the way through from zero to 180, and we ask, is going to yield better results. We ask, why couldn't you just make it continuous? Yeah, with a 90, a step down, a relapse, and another 90, just because those two numbers total 180, completely different look from just doing it all the way through. Yeah, we ask, why didn't you just make it a one continuous, uh, the availability to do one continuous 180 days? Yeah, you know, rather than saying no, you got to stop at 90, step them down, and if they need it, you can then go, you know take them back up slippery slope that so we though ocg has a responsibility to do our best to make it work sure okay and so all we can do we're laying the groundwork and you know we we're adapting we're doing everything we can to make it work and then um the good thing is is that other than the clients who are currently in treatment and we've and we've told them this, you know, the clients that are currently here, they're going to be experiencing this change because they're going to be in this flux, so to speak, as we move from one system into another system. But someone who's coming in and coming into the new system, they don't, they don't know anything. They, you only know what you know. Right. So you have no, nothing to compare it to. Right. Whereas people who, you know, are either in the, or in midstream or experience the old system and come back, they'll say, oh, wow, treatment is only 90 days yeah, now. Real when, different. I, when I was here, it was 24 months. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the 90 days, you weren't even <laughs> off orientation yet. So we'll, we'll try and make it work. We'll do what we do. We'll do what we do. We'll do our best. We're pioneering this, and, you know, who knows? As, as long as we can ethically stand on – we're giving it our best effort, and we're going to really attack this as if it will work and, and really give the clients everything we got because mm-hmm. that's what we're here for to begin with. Then we'll, you know, only time will tell what the right. results will be. That's it. Yep. That's it. That's all we got. Top of the hour. Um, we are going to uh, throw a couple of PSAs out there to our uh, fellow colleagues in the field. Um, little commercial, if you guys were paying attention. You'll uh, pick up on the the choice for music commercial here. 
has a little to do with uh, the topic of the day. We do see we have some callers on hold. Recovery Support Time is up next, so we will get to you guys. Thank you for your patience. Hope you're enjoying the show to this point, and we will talk to you on the other side. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted.
Latino Commission Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services in South San Francisco was organized and incorporated in early 1991 and going on 22 years of providing services to our community. The Latino Commission, also known as TLC, would like to offer our services to those struggling with a substance use disorder. We have residential facilities for men, women, mothers and children, outpatient programs, transitional and SLE homes to assist and promote a successful recovery for individuals. We at the Latino Commission provide educational services on self-esteem, assertiveness, life management, coping skills, anger management, limits and boundaries, and other various subjects. The Latino Commission, restoring people holistically in an environment of love and understanding that represents our culture, improving quality of life. Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. All right, welcome back to Roadshow Recovery. I see we're going to have to get back to another investigation. You got me again? Yes. <laughs> All right, as I'm talking, I'm reaching, I'm reaching for my post-it note. And I'm going to write. Well, let's write it down. I'm going to write on it, uh, remember the X-Files. <laughs> because every time, every show, he he gets me. Yes, yes, that is the the ultimate plan for sure. In my position, one of the highlights of the show for me. Wait, so what, just wait till you start talking in that second half, and then hit you with that sound clip. What I was what I was about to say was that uh, we'll have to launch another investigation. Um, we're not show we're not sure who. Well, if it, is it the engineer that we have to look at in terms of the delay the, of the, the first song, the delay of the, the, uh, first the commercial break? Um, who's the engineer, by the way? I cannot disclose that information <laughs> on air. <laughs> All right, let's go to our X Files. 
got some, I got some goodies. Okay, I like it. Adrian from San Mateo. What is the most deadly drug to kick? That's a great question. An obvious answer is the most deadly drug to kick is whichever one you're addicted to. Pharmacologically, I believe, well, there's the difference between deadly, so the way the questions are asked, what's the most deadly versus what's the hardest one to, to me, the hardest drug to kick is by far nicotine. Um... If he's asking what is the most deadly deadliest drug versus what's the most deadliest one to kick, that's I don't think that's the correct way to ask the question. But in my opinion, the most deadly drug is alcohol, deadliest drug. No other drug harms more vital organs simultaneously than alcohol. It's not to say cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine. That those are, you know, high up there on the uh, the choice list. But, I mean, alcohol does more damage to more things than any, any other. Alcohol's a bad one. Yep. Uh, Courtney from L.A. How long does it take for consistent cocaine usage to burn a hole through your nose? I presume she's talking about a deviated septum. I must be. Well, I have to refer back to our disclaimer where we are not doctors. <laughs> right, right. So I have no idea. But um, one of the reasons why deviated septums in terms of cocaine use are, 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 are much fewer than they were back in the day, back, 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 back in the day, is because less people are snorting right. now than smoking. Right. Okay. Um, but it's but, also like with anything; it's highly contingent upon the individual. It, it, it is individual, yeah. Yep, yep. Your genetics, hereditary makeup, and all that stuff play a part. That's right. Um, but it's hard to say how. You know, you, some people can snort for three months and damage their <laughs> septum, and somebody can snort five years and no damage. No damage. Yeah. Uh, I like this question because it speaks to this next question. It speaks to something that I try and like just ram home to clients all the time in terms of preparation. Anthony from South San Francisco, if I'm having a bad day and feeling lonely, what should I do if I can't get in touch with my support? Okay. Okay. Now that's real. Yeah, that's life. It's going to happen. And so what I like to say is let's build you and prepare you in a fashion that if that should ever come to pass, that you are able to deal with that, withstand that on your own. That's right. That you are the first line of defense. Not there's no reliance on someone outside of you. That's right. Okay. Because that situation, you may find yourself in that situation. You will. You At okay. some point, you will, for sure. Right. And you're the one that's going to have to ultimately make that decision. 
on what you do or don't do. Yeah. Okay. When there's no one to call. So, again, and so our our part of our job is to prepare people to to build them to be able to do that, not to prepare you that you're going to always have support. There's always going to be someone to call, someone to reach out to. No, prepare you for the opposite. And then if there is support, that's just a luxury. That's the cherry on top. There you go. Laura from Santa Rosa wants to know, how do I set healthy boundaries with a parent still in their addiction? Mm. Great question. Love it. That is a good question. And it's also difficult. Because no matter what age you are, okay, your parent's always your parent. Right. Okay. Um, and even if they're doing the wrong thing, they'll, they're still your parent. Okay. But how do you set your boundaries? And by the way, that even applies. It just take it out of the scope of a, a parent, you know, being in their addiction. Just as a normal person growing up and maturing and becoming an adult. Okay. And uh, manifesting a different relationship with your parents, you know, you you get you're married, you have children, okay. Mm-hmm. The relationship is supposed to change. You're now you're you are now a parent, and you now have to parent your child, and you know you have to get sometimes put the stiff arm out there, right, you right, know, to keep the grandparents at bay, you know, uh, um, keep the mother and father and their opinions and their unsolicited advice <laughs> at bay. So it doesn't just apply to the negative, sure. You know what I mean. So, but in 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 terms of how she's asking it, what do we always say about boundaries? We always say part is not defining what the boundaries are, where they need to be set. The hard part is the enforcement, the action. Yeah, enforcing the boundary. We can talk all day and all night about what it is that must be done, it's actually doing it. Right. So when the parent steps over that line, speaking to it, calling them on it, giving them the stiff arm, that's a figurative expression, by the way, and keeping that space that you want, literally and figuratively, verbally, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, all of that space that you want uh, maintained, you have to enforce it. Mm-hmm. And if you're and if the parent's an addict, you know for sure they're going to try and step into your, you know, cross your boundary lines. Right. For some reason or another. So that's a great question. And, and that's an ongoing struggle for people in recovery. Absolutely. Naming, defining, enforcing and then enforcing their boundaries. boundaries yeah. All right, who do we got, sir, on the phone? Who's been holding the longest? Oh, uh, I think we've got a gentleman, Ian, from South San Francisco that's been waiting for quite some time. Hello, Ian. Welcome to the show. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. So um, my question is, um, you know, I've heard uh, quite a bit and I've done a bit of research um, with regard to what uh, what appears to be a rather controversial treatment um, here within the United States, but has shown um, at least some uh, some 
uh, effectiveness um, when uh, used as a treatment in other countries. Um, the, the treatment that I'm referring to is, is uh, called ibogaine. It's derived from the African aboga plant. And I'm just, uh, like I said, I've, I've done some research here on it being an effective treatment option for those suffering from long-term chemical dependency. Uh, I'm just curious, is there any, for one, do you, you know, what do you know about it, and is there any plans to allow the use of this treatment as a tool in the U.S. Uh, to end the cycle of addiction? How old are you, Ian? I'm 36. Do you remember the uh, sitcom from the 1960s called Hogan's Heroes? Yes, I'm aware of it. Do you Good remember show. the character Sar- Sergeant Schultz? <laughs> Indeed, I do. Remember his favorite saying? I can't recall it off the uh, off uh, off the top of my head, but uh, please refresh my memory. His favorite saying was, "I know nothing." <laughs> uh, well, um, so, I do actually have a. I actually do have a few other questions. If uh, well, let me just it, let me just finish the answer on that one. So I'm not sure. familiar with that. What I can tell you is where most of the focus is right now in terms of medications or or other drugs that they can use to help addicts right now is focused on opiates and alcohol. Sure. And then secondarily, they're going to move into the other drugs, cocaine, um, methamphetamine, et cetera. But a lot of stuff coming into play, coming into usage now, having to do with opiate addiction and alcoholism. Right, right. Well, that's a pretty good segue into um, you know, my next question, which is really more or less about the thoughts about big pharma and the okay. role of the business of addiction. Go ahead. Yeah, I just you know would like to kind of understand your guys' thoughts from a you know uh, you know the perspective of effectiveness of big pharma's role in helping people with long-term chemical dependency, um, you know, kick the habit. Well, here we are in 2016. My uh, producer is, uh, you okay there? Appalled by the question. Oh. No, no, just dying of a cough attack over here, but a valid question, actually, very valid question. So here we are in 2016, and I can tell you, where the market should be flooded, it should be easy access. You should be able to go to Walgreens and CVS and wherever else and uh, pick up um, like they have patches over the you know that you can get over the counter for nicotine. Um, you should be able to go and get certain things from the from the pharmacist to help um, deal with uh, uh, um, you know reducing addiction, chemical dependency. Well, how are we in 2016 and there hasn't been development of that, study of that to the point where it's so readily available, but where we are now is is that it's just, it's creeping and crawling into the marketplace. Well, everything, you just trace it, you trace it back to its roots and, you know, it's the five that, you know, the the dirty five-letter word, M-O-N-E-Y. 
<laughs> Understood. I mean, you know, I mean, do you personally feel that, you know, uh, addiction fits the scientific definition of a disease? I do now because when alcoholism was the first one that was defined as a disease because when they studied it and they saw the changes in the brain um, and, and, and that really allowed them to make that statement, they couldn't make that statement you know, back in the day with other drugs. Now they can. They are now able to see the changes in the brain when someone is using and the, how the brain changes depending on how long someone uses and then what happens when they stop. That's what's being studied now because one of the questions that are coming up from people today is, hey, I've used methamphetamine for five years. What's the impact going to be on me? Am I going to be able to you know, biochemically recover from that or is there going to be a long-lasting impact? So they're studying that. But like I said, creeping, crawling, and all the other slow-walking things, you know, ultimately, you know, the old saying, there's no, there's no money in the cure. <laughs> Made famous by Chris Rock. <laughs> Understood. Understood. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, who benefits? You know, <laughs> makes sense uh, to me. Now, from a behavioral perspective, okay. um, you know, do you? I know that there are several, several methodologies and modalities to helping people from, um, you know, obviously uh, thoughts and behaviors um, that, you know, ultimately kind of lead them towards a path of addiction. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm just curious how you might feel, or do you feel, uh, that, you know, treatment options such as you know, AANA, i.e. the 12 steps, you know, in a way maybe ignores or avoids the importance of taking personal responsibility for choices in your life. Um, and if you feel that, you know, focusing on taking personal responsibility is more important than observance of a higher power. Bluebird, bluebird. <laughs> he doesn't know what that means. So that's a very controversial question, which you know, we are not going to shy away from the answer. <clears throat> there are many people, okay, who have achieved let – me, let me phrase it this way. Recovery as we know it would not even be a topic of conversation if it wasn't for AA because that was the first thing that was out there. Everything emanated from there. But to speak to your question, today there are many, many, many people who find recovery through AA, and there are many, many people who are turned off by the 12 step because of its focus on the religious aspect. The position I take, I'm not going to speak for the co host, he can answer for himself, is. I don't care which one you choose, whichever one works. Mm -hmm. Whatever works for you, I'll take. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, even, I mean, whatever works for you, 
right? Whatever leads you to the yeah. path of being able to make better decisions. I mean, what I've found in my experience is, you know, people that, you know, have stayed sober utilizing the 12 steps. Um, right. You know, I've known people that have been successful with it. I've known people that have been non-successful with it. Yep. But I think the common thread between the two has been um, taking personal responsibility for themselves, their life, their life's choices, and owning their own happiness. Right. And, and whether or not that's achieved through AA or not, um, a, I think may... is truly up to the individual. But, you know, it's that first step of, you know, relinquishing, so to speak. I, I, don't, I can't recite it verbatim, but relinquishing your control to that of a higher power when really, in my observance, um, people who have been successful with AA um, had power. Here's they another way to look at it. Here's, here's another way to look at it. Here's another way to look at it, Ian. You're, you're correct. In essence, people who succeed in their recovery experience through the 12-step mechanism, that's their primary mechanism, even though on paper, when you look at the 12 steps and it talks about surrendering and so on and so on and so forth, ultimately, you still have to do the work. You still have, regardless of what it says on that paper, you still have to do the work and take ownership of whatever that work is in order to get the outcome that you want. So even if someone says, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm surrendering this problem to my higher, higher power, so on and so forth. Well, you can do that. You can say those. You can make those utterances. But then what's going to happen next? You, you still have to do something. It all comes back to that old saying. We like to talk about a lot of old sayings here. You know, God helps some. You know, God helps those who help themselves. Okay, sir. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You're very welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. All right. A grilling. Let's go to Billy. Holding a long time. Billy, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. Hello. Yeah, hi, this is Billy. Yes, Billy, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Good. How can we help you, sir? Um, I got a question. Um, why do you feel so overwhelmed when you don't have um, the opiates um, after I've been using for about 12 years? Can you define what you mean when you say overwhelmed um just emotionally and uh physically all right let's separate those two out okay okay how long have you been off the opiates um eight days okay so you're still in did you did you have you did you go through a formal detox or you did you go cold turkey what how how'd you how'd you get off cold turkey Okay, so you're still, your body is still withdrawing. Okay. Okay, so that's one side. Let's put that off to the side. As that process happens and it weans itself and winds itself out of your system and the symptoms of that withdrawal start to subside, okay, now all of a sudden, Billy's feelings, emotions, and thoughts 
are now opened up to the world and now coming to the fore. There's nothing to medicate them, nothing to clamp them down, nothing to stuff them, nothing to hide them. Yeah. And that sometimes gives gives a sense of, like, overwhelmed because you're being hit with all this stuff that you've been medicating for 12 years. Okay. And um, my next question is, um, do you believe that methadone is a good treatment for opiate users? Only if a person needs it. During chronic pain or for... Um, kicking the habit. Well, chronic pain is a separate, separate, separate issue because someone who has chronic pain, methadone is like the last on the list of something that they would try if nothing else has worked because they know that if they give them methadone that they're basically, you know, you know, they need it now. Right. So in, in terms of a treatment tool to help with the addiction, Okay, that's why my answer was it depends if you need it. Yeah. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be used as a, um, hey, you know, this withdrawal is tough. Eight days in, because eight days in, you're already on the backside. You're on the back end. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And. You may not know this, but you know there, there are many options available now out there for opiate addicts in terms of medications to assist them in terms of dealing with the withdrawal symptoms and so on and so forth um, so that they can get off of the opiates. Okay. But, you know, wh- whichever way someone does it, if someone decides to go cold turkey, at day eight, they're on the backside. And so it's a matter of, you know, holding on for dear life for the next two to five days, you know what I mean? Yeah. For the physical symptoms to kind of subside and wear off, and then now we just start to deal with Billy. Okay. Okay, that was my question. Okay, Let let me leave you with one thing. Yes. If you lick, L-I-C-K, if you lick this opiate habit, this opiate addiction, and it's a two-step process, you lick it physically first, and then you lick it psychologically. If you lick it physically and then start the process of dealing with the psychological aspects of your addiction, okay, okay. and you start making progress there, if you yeah. then go back, if you go back, and I, I only say this to heroin addicts, opiate addicts. I don't say this to anyone else. If you go back, I call you the stupidest addict of them all. Why do I call, why do I call the opiate addicts that? Because it is so difficult. It is so hard to get off of it. And if you accomplish that feat and are physically able to get off of it, and now you only have to deal with the psychological reasons of why I use drugs in the first place. Should never go back. Never go back. Okay. So now they have other treatment plans for um, chronic pain now, 
correct? Well, if you're in chronic pain, I would, I, my point I was making is it, methadone is like the last, last, last thing a doctor would prescribe for chronic pain because that means that it's like nothing else they've tried prior to has worked. Okay. Now, what if you don't want to use the opiate or, or take, let's say, um, the, the common uh, Norco, Percocets, or anything like that, and um, you had a problem by taking too many at a time? Then you shouldn't, if, you, if, if you're a person who had a problem with opiates, period, you shouldn't, and, and you have pain issues, you should be looking for alternatives. There are other alternatives out there other than opiate-based um, pain pain medications that can help someone out. That should be a last resort because, because, okay, what are the risks of a person heading back down that road? We got a lot, we got a lot of, uh, Stories laying all laying all over the highway of people who've gone back down that road because of painkillers. Yeah. So we got to be smart. Okay. 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 All right, sir. You have a good evening. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. So we've. We've touched on that. Do you need a? You, need, you want me to throw you a, a cough drop? No, I'm just about to unwrap another one. I'm on oh. my fourth. Okay. All right. Yeah, we've gone down that road several times, and you and I are kind of sitting in the same seat regarding our point of view on it. Mm-hmm. If it's medically necessary and a doctor has said, you know, we'll weed out, like you said, the difference between someone who has chronic pain because that's a completely different path for them to manage that versus someone who's just trying to kick a heroin habit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, but yeah, we we kind of have the same point of view on for those coming into recovery, coming off of heroin, if the, if a doctor has deemed it medically necessary for you to taper off your, you know, the body, so to speak, mm-hmm. via methadone or whatever the case may be and you are genuine with yourself and that you're not abusing that then you do what you need to do. Right. That's the name of the game. Chronic pain is like a whole other subject. Yeah. yeah. You can't fool yourself, by the way. No. So if someone has, you know, like ulterior motives or nefarious reasons why they might want to use methadone or other narcotic-based treatments to help wean them off of another narcotic, you know, you can't fool yourself. You can fool me. You can fool you, but you can't fool yourself. You can try to, like, fool yourself. You know, you can make some sort of weird justifications and... And rationales. Rationales, you know, trying to make things okay. And you might even believe your own your but, own stories for a while. But, but here's the thing. Here's the catch. In your brain, you can fool yourself, but not in your gut. Right. Oh, yeah, no. Okay. There's a difference between the two. Right. All right, let's go to John from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, John. Hi. So, um, my question is, why is smoking cigarettes so uh, accepted in recovery? And in a second question, you know, going into why it's so accepted in, like, 12-step groups. 
Well, I sense attached to the word accepted is some negative connotation. Um, well, not necessarily. I mean, what I'm getting at is I think, you know, it's obvious that cigarettes is an addiction. And yes. I'm not sure as to why it's uh, just accepted in the sense that, you know, people are allowed to uh, do these things in recovery. Why? And in 12-step, it's like uh, accepted, you know, because it's yeah. not necessarily you can't allow or disallow someone from doing something out there, but it's culturally accepted. Okay. I think... I, well, I can only speak for no. I, I I can speak for a lot of programs. I'll think of a different word other than accepted, but I think I understand what you're saying. People come in, you know, and they're 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 addicted to drugs, okay? And they smoke cigarettes, which has nicotine, which is also a drug, and which is also very addictive, okay? And so, conceptually. We, we we look at the drugs that they're addicted to that impact their behavior that then has an impact on their life. Doesn't mean that the nicotine or the cigarettes, I should say, because nicotine in and of itself is not even even though it's addictive, does not, you know, do anything to you. It's all the other stuff that's in the cigarette that does stuff to you. Um but I think more and more programs are are making available tobacco cessation as a part of their process, making it available for people who also who might be you know cigarette smokers that they want to address that also. But for me as a counselor and a provider, I'm like first things first. Let's get you off the stuff that's really you know negatively impacting your life. Second thing, second, you might want to look at you know, reducing, tapering, stopping the cigarette smoke, because that's also going to have an impact on your life health-wise. Okay? Right. And with all the stuff that's out there now, patches and other mechanisms for people to taper off of cigarettes, you know, you know other tools that they have out there now, you know, it's, it's just a lot more for people to take advantage of to stop smoking. Right, so, I I get I get the AA you know and NA thing that cigarettes and and coffee don't leave that one out. They can smoke <laughs> some cigarettes and drink themselves some coffee now, but um, you know the coffee of course should be in moderation. Judas Priest, I, they drink so much coffee it's unbelievable. <laughs> How do they go to sleep with so much caffeine in their system? I'm talking to All a right. producer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would have no idea, but yes, coffee yeah. night and day. Just seems to be uh, kind of like the caller said, a part of the culture. Yeah, it just kind of goes hand in hand. I've never smoked cigarettes, so it's you know, but I I, I have mandated people to quit back in the day when it, when those those kind of mandates were allowed. You could just walk through the program and say, "You, you're no longer a smoker." But it's a new day. We have to cajole people and make and and teach them why it's in their best interest to 
reduce their cigarette smoking and eventually eliminate their cigarette smoking. But walking in the door if someone smokes cigarettes, first things first. I want to get you off that heroin. I want to get you off that cocaine. I want to get you off that methamphetamine. I want to get you off that alcohol. That's what I want to do. Yeah, I understand that. And I I guess it's like, you know, being in recovery is is about getting healthy. And, uh, you know, it it just seems counterintuitive to allow people to smoke while, while you're trying to get them healthy. But I understand you, what are, you're saying about are you a Are you a current or former smoker? So for me, uh, I have been, I was smoking for a few months in the program, and then I quit smoking for a few months. And, you know, for me, I noticed that it's, you know, it's definitely difficult to quit when you're around people who smoke all the time. And that is the general social activity, right? But, um, well, you know, gonna, now wait, wait, I, wait, after... Wait a minute, John. We have to challenge you on that. I look at it very differently. I look at it very differently. To me, it's no different than the challenge of being out in society and you're in your recovery experience and you find yourself in a group of people who are either drinking or smoking, you know, marijuana or doing whatever and... How does that impact what you want to do or what you choose to do? If you don't want to smoke cigarettes, being stuck in an elevator with 15 people smoking camels should not impact your decision on whether or not you're going to smoke cigarettes or not. That's true. I I see that. So it's good practice. A a mental fortitude. Yep. Yeah, I, I see that. I guess what I was what I was saying was that you know being being around it and having it um, you know be around you all the time yep. makes you think about it more than if Smelling you weren't it, around yeah. it all the time. Yeah, yep. I agree. I agree. But it's still yeah. it's still it still offers an opportunity to practice and simulate something that you may experience during your recovery process when you're out you know out in the world. Yeah, I I do I do see it actually that way sometimes. But I liked I liked your statement when you said recovery is about getting healthy. Mm-hmm. That is a very true statement and that's healthy in all facets. So I agree 100% with that. Yes. Okay, sir. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Mr. Producer, when are you going to kick your three-pack-a-day habit? (laughs) All right. Holy smokes. Cigarettes, that is the thing, you know, and you see it, you know, for those of you out there either in the field or who've ever walked into a meeting in the programs, residential, outpatient, all the same, you've got that coffee pot on, keeping it hot 24-7, and cigarettes in the staff office, passing them out left and right. I mean, you you go ahead and you take away coffee and cigarettes for a day, and you want to see some feelings. But that's kind of, I think the caller made a great point. It's almost a cultural thing mm-hmm. of the group, like a 
beyond socially accepted, it's it's almost expected mm-hmm. that if you go to a meeting or if you're going to hang out with other people in recovery, you're doing so with a cup of coffee and a cigarette in your mouth. Like mm-hmm. that's just how that that social kind of interaction plays. And I can feel his point, and to your point with the elevator, and this is all very true. If you don't want to do something, you're just not going to do it. But in residential programs specifically, the time to bond, the kind of break from the monotony of the structure, when you get a break between groups or before or after meals, all your peers and the whole social environment is centering and taking place around a cigarette outside. And so it it does add to the challenge, your point being taken into consideration that if you don't want to do it, you're just not going to do it. But that environment that's created where this is the time for you to have some normalcy, a social escape, just a conversation with people you're in treatment with, mm-hmm. everyone's doing that over a cigarette. And it can, it can add to the challenge of not doing that. Or you can just sit in the group and talk without a cigarette. You're basically smoking one anyway with the 20 cigarettes that are being smoked around you. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm worried about. All that secondhand second, smoke, second, right? Secondhand smoke. But I, I think what we need to do is implement and adopt the Roach on Recovery uh, um, Stop Smoking uh, plan. I, I have a foolproof plan. Okay. <laughs> Hasn't failed yet. Well, you better not talk about it any further, and we may need to talk after the show about marketing. This yeah, year. I can't. I can't. I can't push it too much because since <laughs> I'm a non-smoker, and I, that's why I asked him. Is you know you could be a non-smoker and have smoked before, right? Versus you've never smoked. So I've never smoked. So right. When I, I'm counseling someone who is a cigarette smoker and wants to stop smoking, I have to come from – I have to have the understanding that I have never done what they are experiencing. Yeah, and it's difficult. Right. And so um, so I developed a stop smoking uh, plan to suit, well, I'm, to suit that. <laughs> I'm intrigued. You've got me intrigued. It's, it's foolproof, I'm telling you. It's foolproof. It works. And not much in life is, so <laughs> – that's good. That's good. 1999, as seen on TV. That's right. <laughs> How are we doing on time? We're good. We have we have about five minutes. There's a couple callers if you want to go screenless. screenless. Roll the dice. Roll the dice on them. We've had some good ones today so far. All right. Let's go. Uh, this one's. All right. Let's go with this one here. Hi. Welcome to Roach and Recovery. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? Yes, my name is Samantha, and I'm from Los Altos. Hi. How can we help you? So um, I actually suffer from bipolar 2 disorder, and um, and I was addicted to methamphetamine. Um, and then later on, eventually, heroin came into the picture. Um, and I just thought it was kind of interesting how um, I've always suffered from serious depression uh, since I was young. And um, and so the the uppers was what I was wanting, and then um, but then when heroin came, it was weird. It was like I almost was like, oh, I like this feeling too, but I had to have both, and it just they're so opposite. <laughs> so it's like it was something I never understood. Like I was just wondering, like how, like why would I want that if it just seems like it's gonna balance it out? If you know what I mean, like putting that's those very, together. That's very common. Although mm. people may choose different chemicals to accomplish mm-hmm. that or to, to to have that effect, it's very common. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's something I, I just, I never thought in a million years I would ever, ever touch those drugs. And it just so, escalated so quickly. So I'll give you an example. So alcohol is a depressant. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So my mm-hmm. brother, who's an alcoholic, all, the only reason why he did cocaine was to level out the effect of the alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> That's my story, too. So people use just they, – they try to accomplish it. They just use different things to, mm-hmm. to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. Now, me, from a comical standpoint, would say, well, why do you want to – listen, which high do you want? Because you're just ruin, wasting your money and ruining your high. <laughs> yeah, I was I was always wanting the the upper feeling, you know, feeling happy and in, invincible, you know, like nothing could mm-hmm. stop me. And then, um, but then eventually it started. Like I felt it, it was painful. It just became very painful to the body, to the mind. And mm-hmm. then someone was, you know, was doing heroin. I tried it, and I was like, whoa, I like this feeling, but I still couldn't give up the methamphetamine because I still wanted that rush. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, to me, it was just very weird because they kind of, they're, they're opposites. And, um, and I remember when I started drinking when I was 17, um, it made the depression worse, obviously, and that's how cocaine yep. came into the picture. Right. And then it just escalated from there um, all this time, and now I'm 31 years old <laughs> and still battling it. You know, so now you're are you you're you're not on anything right now? No, I'm not on anything right now. I'm in. And how 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 do you feel physically and mentally and emotionally? Um, this is uh, the first couple. This is now almost two weeks. Actually, it's over two weeks now. Um, and uh, it's been very it's been very hard, um, very up and down. Um, and moods, and it's very quickly the switches, and um, also the medication has to go little by little, um, moving up, because um, I have to start from scratch since obviously I was abusing drugs what's, and not taking them. What What did you say your name was again? Well, uh, Samantha. Okay, Samantha. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting the rap signal. From the producer, because we're getting ready. The computer's going to cut us off because we're getting ready to run out of time. So, also, what I want you to do, because I, I want to hear the the complete answer to that question. So, if mm-hmm. if you can, in our next show, which is going to be two weeks from ten, from tonight, uh-huh. if you can call back so we can continue that conversation. Absolutely. Okay. Because um, I'm very interested in hearing how you're adapting now since you've experience using all those drugs and now you're trying to get freedom from that how that how does that impact you emotionally mentally physically etc okay yeah yeah absolutely all right thank you all right thank you all right bye-bye bye-bye all right man 10 seconds go just say it say what you gotta say so disrespectful to the callers just cutting them off the slot is confined and i do not have control over that all right. That's it? Yep. Great. Well, uh, as always, we'd like to thank everybody who called in either to participate or just to listen, people who continue to give us their ongoing support. It is much appreciated, and we thank you all for it. Um, we look forward to talking to everybody in a couple of weeks. Again, if you would like to listen to one of our shows on the Tuesday that we will not be on the air next Tuesday, feel free to visit the archives 
and pull up one of the shows that sounds interesting to you. They're all pretty good. Hopefully you will enjoy listening to one of them. Uh, we wish everybody a safe couple of weeks and a great uh, and fun couple of weekends. June and, 7th. And we will talk to you all on the 7th. Take care.
festive chambers They gathered for the feast They stab it with their stealing eyes But they just can't our show for this evening thank you for listening be sure to listen to our next broadcast tuesday at 4 p.m pacific standard time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash ocg radio like us friend us and follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash ocg and on twitter at ocg you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Some day somebody's gonna make you wanna turn around and say goodbye.